from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's Vegetable Garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. This summer, Ethan Hawke turned out a lot of big work, both as an actor in the movies First Reformed and Juliet Naked, and also as a director in his fourth film, Blaze, which is about a country-western singer-songwriter who called himself Blaze Foley and died young with only a small cult of fans. Lucinda Williams wrote a song called Drunken Angel about Blaze. Well, this is written uh, about a songwriter I knew back in Texas by the name of Blaze Foley. Ideally, the movie doesn't aspire to be a Wikipedia biopic. It aspires to be kind of uh, using Blaze's life and legend as a dialogue about creativity and love, sex and death. Uh, it, it tries to be a blues song. We've got a clip from the movie. This is Ben Dickey playing Blaze Foley and Alia Shokat playing his girlfriend Sybil Rosen. So you're going to be a big country star like Roger Miller? Huh? I don't want to be a star. I want to be a legend. (laughs) (laughs) What's the the difference, Debbie? Well, stars burn out because they shine for themselves. Mm. Look at me shine. Look at me glow. I'm amazing. Legend lasts forever. So to make a biopic, a show business biopic about a guy who isn't famous at all, uh, there's something kind of beautifully perverse about that, right? Virtually every biopic you see about a musician is about an internationally world-famous— Ray Charles. Yeah, Yeah. Johnny Cash, you know, Billie Holiday. You you think of it—I did one, Chet Baker. You know, I mean, they're they're always about some brilliant— person who had a tremendous amount of success. And the subtext of that is that their life is interesting because they're famous. But what I wanted to do is thought, wouldn't it be fun to make a movie about a musician who never made it? You never have the scene where they make it big. Right. You never have the scene at the Grammys where they get too drunk. Uh, the actors who play those famous musicians in biopics generally learn to play or, or to convincingly mm-hmm. pretend to play their instruments. As Chet Baker, right? You kind of learned the trumpet. Yeah. But in Blaze, you cast two musicians to play the lead roles as musicians. Not only Ben Dickey as Blaze, but also Charlie Sexton uh, as his fellow outlaw country singer Towns Van Zandt. Now, as it turned out, both of them are phenomenal naturals. But why didn't you just hire experienced professional actors? I was playing Chet Baker. Uh, the great 50s jazz trumpeter yep. in, in, in the biopic about him. And I was really working hard to play the trumpet. And I really realized that to really understand this person, you needed to understand his relationship to his instrument. And that in a lot of ways, the best parts of him were revealed in that relationship. 
I'm one of the greatest trumpet players of my generation. One of the best jazz improvisationalists. So is trumpet or nothing? Yes. How he played, how he practiced, how he listened, how he worked with others in relationship to music. And that that was where his love was available. And that I couldn't get at that. And that's the most true part of him. And I thought to myself, you know, if I ever made a movie about musicians, I'd rather find a musician with an aptitude for acting. And, and I would rather, rather than spend two years teaching someone to play the trumpet... I'd rather spend two years teaching them to act and have them already huh. play the trumpet. Do you, you know? Yeah. Well, and they're performers, so they're halfway there already, right? They're halfway, and if they're a certain kind of performer, it's really just adjusting the dial. As an actor, you've worked with some great filmmakers: Peter Weir, Alfonso Cuarón, Richard Linklater, again and again in in Before Sunrise, and then the sequels, and in The Amazing Boyhood. Are there things you've learned from those people, uh, for your work as a director? Actors get to spend sets, a time on sets with lots of different directors. That's what I'm saying. And you get to see very obviously that there is not a right way to make a movie. That there are so many different ways to create something worth watching. Everybody's got a different approach. What about the opposite? Uh, directors who can remain, remain nameless, we want, who like, nah, I'm never going to do that. Or, nope, that's something I want to avoid. Every time I hear a director say, my film, I want to punch him in the face. And it, it, it's such a collaborative medium. And I hear them say that all the time. My work, my film, in my work, my vision, my thing. To me, that is the essence of making a good film is being available for life to to come into the whole team most of the time acting directing it's all about moving energy um another movie you appear in that came out this year recently first reformed this paul schrader film he wrote and directed it you play this alcoholic protestant minister in this rural church we have a clip of that as well where your your guy, your Reverend uh, Reverend Toller Toller is counseling one of his congregants, Michael, this young environmentalist who th- is full of existential dread about the fate of the world. That's about sets it up, doesn't yeah, it? I think okay. So. so, you know my story. Hmm? Yeah, you were a chaplain. Uh-huh. My father taught at VMI. I encouraged my son to enlist. It was a family tradition, uh, like his father, my father, for me. Uh, patriotic tradition. My wife uh, was very opposed. My son enlisted anyway, and uh, six months later he was dead in Iraq. I talked my son into a war that had no moral justification. You know, people of faith, they're often dramatized either in some kind of cartoon way or they're a diabolic, you know, when you see a priest in a movie, he's either like, you know, crazy, lunatic, mean, or a buffoon, or they're very rarely a film engaged in looking at what it means to dedicate your life to your inner life. I related to this character's search on a profound level. I I don't know any other vocabulary always sounds so corny, but I really enjoyed playing it as, as hard as it was. Yeah. Um, 
you you got famous as a teenager in Dead Poet Society, mm-hmm. um, and 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 then pretty immediately uh, were were as they say changing lanes a lot, right? I mean, you you did check off on Broadway at mm-hmm. age twenty two. You, you published your first novel at twenty six. Uh, was that uh, in response to like, hey, I'm not just going to do the normal cute movie star trajectory that has been plotted for me. I'm gonna I'm gonna do these other things. Or was that was that a conscious like, no, screw you. I'm not I'm not that guy. I'm gonna do I'm gonna write a novel. I'm gonna do Chekhov. Acting is cruel to people, you know. I mean, it, it, it they celebrate you one second and disdain you the next and. So I never took any of the celebration very seriously. There was never any screw you attached to it. It was really basically like, hey, I want my obituary to be mine, not yours. I remember there, you know, when I first did a film of Hamlet and there are people that rolled their eyes, well, now he wants to play Hamlet. Like, (laughs) why should, this is my life. And what what world wouldn't I want to play Hamlet? I mean, if I'm an aspiring actor, Give me a break. Because you're a movie star. You're not supposed to do those yeah, serious things exactly. because that makes you pretentious. I remember being, I was 25. My hero, I love the Steppenwolf Theater Company. I In Chicago. In Chicago. They were what I wanted to do with my life. And I got offered to be in Buried Child for the 20th anniversary of Steppenwolf Theater Company. I Sa- went down there. Big Sam Shepard play. Big Sam Shepard. Pulitzer Prize winning Sam Shepard play. Sam was going to be there. Gary Sinise was directing. It was very exciting. And I remember... All these, everybody kept asking me, why are you doing this? And I kept thinking, this is the greatest job I've ever been on. What, I, I'm, what am I supposed to be doing? And that's where I learned that people are just inherently mistrustful if you're, if you're not blindly chasing money all or, the time. Or fame, or both. Or fame, or yeah, both. Yeah. But if your goal, because I, I wasn't trying to be a good person. My, I right. was extremely ambitious. I was really trying to be... A, a great actor. Right. And I felt that this was the path. The path to really excelling at my profession was to take care of my education. So I tried to write. I tried to act in plays. I tried to... Because you dropped out of college to become a movie star. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, so I did have a feeling of... uh, that I was behind. Right. In an interview recently, you kind of stepped in it with the comics superhero Twitter sphere uh, when you basically said that Marvel superhero movies, even very good ones like Logan, simply aren't among the the great works of cinema. Here's the thing. I'm not talking about the quality of the movies. There is an unbelievable priority put on making money. My business doesn't exist in the same way. Studios aren't making dramas. If you if your dream in life is to star in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest or um, Five Easy Pieces or Reds or, you know, like serious yeah, yeah, yeah. dramas, yeah. right? They're not being made in the same way that they were because there is a huge priority put on they would, rather, they would rather make one movie for $100 million than 10 movies for $10 million. I get it. They're in a business. I'm not, in a, I'm not a businessman. So I'm allowed to say right. I wish they made some other kinds of movies. I was never – the reason why I talked about Logan, for example, is because I love Logan. Right. I was, and it is really good for a superhero movie. I, it's, exactly. It's a really good movie on its own, yeah. but, but it gets 
I've it. never believed in high art and low art. There is art that people put their thought and their brains and their love into, and they do it sometimes in werewolf pictures or superhero movies. Right. There's no doubt in my mind that Scott Derrickson put his heart, blood, and soul into Doctor Strange. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind. My daughter had a religious experience at Doctor Strange. I'm not disrespecting that form. I'm talking about where is everybody else. Yep. And it's a vic- when a movie like Moonlight, you know, can make money. See, that sends a signal to everybody in, in our industry. Hey, hey guys, audiences don't just want to see one thing. You know, yep. it's a, that's what I'm talking about. I hear you. And, and happy to have that. But boy, uh, howdy, did it. I, I, did I get kicked in the teeth? Boy, howdy, you did. Um, but television, of course, is now, has been for 10 or 20 years, the place where the kind of seriousness you're talking about can be done, is done more often. One of the problems I have with television as a viewer is I feel people shucking and jiving trying to entertain me until they run out of shucking and jiving, right? And what I love about The Godfather, what I love about Citizen Kane, right, I don't... What I love about cinema is you have only two hours to do it and you can't it, chuck and jive as much, for one thing. There's an art form to doing a great TV show and right. there's an art form to doing for a, sure. great, a great movie. And I, I do think one thing that you're right about is that a lot of the best dramatic acting does exist in TV. Right. And in the same way that a lot of the best writers um, used to go to the theater, they're now going to television. And writers and actors you know, go together. Yeah. Uh, for your whole career, uh, as I've looked back on it, you seem to have sought out roles that are older than you actually are. Now, at 47, you're playing a grandfather in Juliet Naked. But even back when you were 35, you played a, a father to a full-grown son in the hottest state, uh, as you did uh, also in, in, in boyhood in your early 40s. Is that... A thing you've done purposefully? Uh, my first movie, I was 13 years old, building my own spaceship, and now I've played a grandfather. Now, I'm a young grandfather, but I like being ahead of that instead of I'm not sitting here resisting it. Right. There must be a reason we're supposed to grow old. There's things to be learned here, and there's things to be gained. And I, I, I remember I saw a photo the other day of when I was 16, and I remember that I loved that photo when it came out. You know, it's like in my mom's thing, because I really thought I looked old, you, you know? Yeah. And I started thinking about, I wonder, I, I don't want that feeling to go away. Meaning, I want to look at a photo and say, wow, I look old in that. Like yeah, with yeah. a smell like, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. getting there. Yeah. You, you, you know? Yeah. Is that the plan for the next 20 years, 30 years? To, to Acting as the center gig? You know, there's, there's a lot of ways to grow up. I mean, my, my hope is to use acting to integrate it with my life, to grow up and be a person that can be of use in the world and not just kind of talk about what's good and bad in movies, yeah. you know, which is, which I love. Give me a Talking about TV shows and superhero movies. And right. I mean, I'm a full-blown geek, right? Right. I love to talk about right. this stuff. And um, my... Uh, dissatisfaction with different things, which I think sometimes people think is like pretentious or something, is actually what it, what I mean about how hard it is to swim against the tide. And, and when everybody talks about how great TV is, well, then everybody starts working in TV. I understand. And then all the jobs are in TV and they don't have that talent right. level attached to them. And right. there's just a ton of money being spent and a lot of confusion. So I'm looking at it from a slightly different angle, but not usually the angle that is actually getting put on me. Right. 
writing and, and directing is something where I can, it's p- really pure, like for the love of creativity. Right. And I try to keep them protected. Acting, yeah. I have done some jobs in my life where, uh, you know, I really want creative freedom. I, I call it playing a wedding. You know, sometimes even a good band plays a wedding. Right. You know, and it doesn't mean you don't do your best and it doesn't mean you don't put everything in it. And it means it's not, when you're making boyhood, and you're acting in Boyhood, and you're working with Richard Linklater on this very dangerous, wild idea of making a movie over 12 years. And it's... My job doesn't get more interesting right. than that. It's a mission. Right? It's a mission, right? It's part of why I, why I want to be alive, mm-hmm. right? Blaze feels that way to me, too. I don't know if there's a coincidence that now that you're fully middle-aged, like, this is kind of your time. I mean, you were, it's like you were ready for it. Well, look, man, I've been working really hard yeah. to be ready f- for it. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I, I, I like to have an end game. You know, my end game isn't now. You know, that my end game is Lear at 80. Y- y- yeah. Y- you know I mean? And you got to be ready for that. You can't just like phone in your whole life and then at 80 play King Lear. Right. You know, you have to prepare right. your whole life. Right. And if you're doing that, then what's great about that is the, the kind of more obvious success and failures and the ups and downs of that roller coaster, they, they flatten out a little bit and my life becomes livable because I know that success and failure is often determined by simply how what you're doing intersects with what the public wants. It's not really a, a metric for how you're doing. Right. Ethan Hawke, uh, thank you very much uh, for coming in today. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Well, I... Enjoyed my time too. Good, excellent. The sun came up, it was another day, and the sun went down. You were blown away. Why'd you let go of your guitar? Why'd you ever let it go You can see Ethan Hawke's latest work pretty much anywhere you watch movies. First Reformed is now streaming, and both Juliet Naked and Blaze are in theaters nationwide. Now, moving on from Ethan Hawke to Nighthawks. Who are these four people? People have been studying Edward Hopper's most famous painting, the one at night in the city in the diner, for three-quarters of a century. But its mysteries endure. The man and woman seated in the middle of the painting certainly appear to be a couple, otherwise they wouldn't be seated that closely. And yet they don't seem to be interacting at all. And what about the man opposite? The Nighthawk's puzzle that keeps on puzzling. That's next here on Studio 360. Studio 360. There's a classic old urban diner that I'm pretty sure you're familiar with. It's been depicted with James Dean inside, with Santa Claus, with Stewie from Family Guy, with Darth Vader, and probably many, many more. And it's been sung about and written about, and your college roommate probably had it on her wall. But before this diner was seared into our minds, it existed only in the head of one person. An artist, a middle-aged guy, painting in lower Manhattan, 
under a giant skylight right after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. For this latest segment in our Peabody Award-winning series on American icons, Sarah Lilly traces the birth and ongoing life of a very American painting. Edward Hopper's 1942 work, Nighthawks. I don't even want to describe it because you know this image. Even if you think you don't, really, you do. Okay, here we go. It's a city corner at night, and the street is dead. The image is wide and rectangular, and on the right half, there's this Depression-era diner with a curving plate glass front. Inside, these pale yellow walls and just a lunch counter that's shaped like a boomerang. The lighting is bright and unnatural and even a little dreadful. It spills out onto the sidewalk. The joint is near empty. The counter attendant in a white food service cap appears to be rinsing his hands. And at the rear curve of the counter facing you is a man in a suit and hat. Beside him, a woman in a red dress. They don't look at each other. At the near flank of the counter sits another man on a stool. He's in the exact same dark suit and hat. His back is towards you, so you can't see his face. It all just begs the question, Who are these four people? That's Arden Reed, the late art scholar and proponent of the so-called slow art movement. The man and woman seated in the middle of the painting certainly appear to be a couple, otherwise they wouldn't be seated that closely. And yet they don't seem to be interacting at all. And, and what about the man opposite? You just have no idea. And while you're wondering, some odd points start to register. There's no door into this diner. It's a, a, a piece of glass that wraps around from one side to the other. So on the one hand, we're given access to this scene. And on the other hand, we're excluded from it. There's ob obviously a very voyeuristic quality to Hopper. It's almost like they're in a fishbowl, you know? Carter Foster worked at the Whitney Museum for 11 years and curated a major Hopper exhibit in 2013. He's currently deputy director of curatorial affairs at the Blanton Museum in Austin, Texas. It is quite cinematic and dramatic. I think the, the lighting is very dramatic. This light, apparently at the time, fluorescent lighting was new, and it casts a kind of cold but intense light over the whole scene and then extends back into the street. And I think, um, as with like the best of his work, it sort of straddles the line between a surreal or dreamlike quality and a realism that anchors you down. Even the coffee cups are lonely. It's like he reduced it down to the absolute minimum of what needed to be there. Charlotte Ironman is an art historian and curator who is director of the art collection at J.P. Morgan Chase. It's a masterful painting. The rigor of the geometry and the balance of the composition, the kind of grandeur of it is very much dialed into much older traditions of art history. When he painted Nighthawks, Hopper was 59 and already making his own art history. He'd been featured in shows at major museums like the Whitney, the Met, and MoMA. But though he'd been living in New York for decades, he always cherished his time as a young man in Paris. <laughs> This kind of theme of, of people together but separate, convened in an urban space like a cafe, does go back to that 19th century French tradition um, of which Manet and Degas are, I think, the most important. And later, um, of course, 
Van Gogh would paint the night cafe and a very similar kind of palette. So I think Hopper's nodding to that. There's no question that Hopper knew the painting, that he saw it in person. Gail Levin has been studying and writing books about Hopper for over 40 years. She's a professor at Baruch College and considered by many to be the expert on Hopper. I think the palette is very much related to Van Gogh's Night Cafe. I know he knew it and saw it before he painted Nighthawks. He knew it well. The Night Cafe also has a late-night, almost headachey feel. A paltry smattering of leftover patrons, sharp shadows on the floor from glaring overhead lamps. Smack in the middle of the cafe is an empty billiards table, just yawning in abandon. Van Gogh once called it the ugliest painting he had made in his life. But Hopper may have been drawn to its feeling of menace, quietly on the boil. The theme of that violence could happen, could break out. Van Gogh wrote about that to his brother. And then the Hemingway that we know Hopper read and loved, Ernest Hemingway's short story, The Killers. In The Killers, Two hired thugs stalk a nearly empty diner at dusk, waiting to ambush a regular who is their target. Here's Stacy Keach reading from the audiobook. What do you do here nights? Al asked. They eat the dinner, his friend said. They all come here and eat the big dinner. That's right, George said. So you think that's right? Al asked George. Sure. You're a pretty bright boy, aren't you? Sure, said George. Well, you're not. Al and his quote-unquote friend proceed to intimidate and ultimately terrorize the manager and a lone customer at the counter. Hopper was hooked. And that gave him a certain theme, the idea of people in a cafe uneasy with violence about to happen. After an hour, the gangster's target hasn't yet shown, so they leave, clearly planning on continuing their hunt the next day. The end. It's perversely ungratifying, and it forces you to live with not knowing what will happen. Hopper always remembered it, and he took the power of that question mark even further by not providing any backstories either. Who are his people? You'll never know. It can give you a sense of, I don't know if anxiety is the right word, but you know, the reason people are drawn to Hopper in general is because there is this level of ambiguity that allows you to complete the story. He left a lot open and and left things an unanswered question. You know, he'd been an illustrator. That was one of my big discoveries. He used to be paid 25 cents an hour to watch movies and make publicity posters. He was a real cinema aficionado, and he could go to many movies in one day. It's a pastime that he developed very early. And he'd continued to watch all kinds of movies, French cinema, Hollywood films. Late 1941, when he started Nighthawks, was just as film noir was starting to take shape. The year of Citizen Kane, the Maltese Falcon, and then, of course... Here is the motion picture record released by the United States Navy. On December 7th, 1941, Japan, like its infamous Axis partners, struck first and declared war afterwards. And Joe in her diaries, Josephine, his wife, 
was writing about the anxiety that the Germans were going to bomb New York and that Edward was busy working on this painting and he wouldn't even obey the blackout rules. Once he got the impetus to paint it and knew what he wanted to put on it, it came within six weeks. When you think about the moment of its making, you know, we were halfway through the war at that point. It's a time of incredible personal um, and collective, you know, sacrifice and trauma. So, you know, all of a sudden, Nighthawks become something that is much more psychologically complex. Andrew Walker heads the Eamon Carter Museum in Fort Worth. He was a curator for years at the Art Institute of Chicago, which is the only owner Nighthawks has ever known. Think about who was also impacting the art world in that time, not only from the psychological worlds of Jung and Freud and others, but also from, you know, somebody like Hitchcock. I mean, they were all interconnected in some ways. For whatever reason, he got it. He got it all. Like, he wasn't trying to, to make a filmic painting, but, but he did. The creation of Nighthawks dovetailed so seamlessly with the birth of film noir that to untangle who was influencing whom is sort of beside the point. Take The Big Sleep, which was written by Raymond Chandler in 1939 and made into perhaps the classic film noir in 1946, starring Humphrey Bogart. Sometimes I wonder what strange fate brought me out of the storm to that house that stood alone in the shadows. As I probed into its mysteries, every clue told me a different story. But each had the same ending, murder. The hovering veils of violence, sex, maybe even depravity, take you right back to the atmosphere of Nighthawks. You know, it's such a different um, imagery of Americans than what you would expect to see by the 1950s and 60s with the kind of glorification of suburban life of the young family. The Life magazine cover with, you know, the very domestic scene. Elizabeth Cohen is a historian at Harvard who specializes in 20th century America. Remember, we're coming out of a Great Depression where there's very little building and then a war where there were all kinds of shortages and not very much building. So you get these soldiers coming back, people who delayed marriages, delayed having children, and all of a sudden they need homes. And um, we didn't choose to build a lot of housing in cities. Instead, the strategy for metropolitan development was to develop suburban communities. And we did that with very clear federal policies. So many of the people who would have gone to see this painting by the 1950s, 60s, 70s, would have viewed it as um, outsiders of a sort. I think loneliness was projected by viewers onto Hopper, who really didn't ever feel lonely. I think he relished his solitude. He liked to skate. Drawing was really crucial to his practice, and Hopper did use mirrors to, to draw himself for this painting. He set up double mirrors so he could look, see himself from the back. The mirror that he used is still in his um, studio at number three Washington Square. All right, so I am 
walking around on a sweltering summer day. And um, I'm just heading over to where Edward Hopper lived for the bulk of his adult life. It's uh, this beautiful red brick. Ooh, I'm standing in front of it now. It's a beautiful red brick townhouse. Um, really amazing. Just on the northern edge of Washington Square uh, in Greenwich Village. This was the easel that he painted most of his major works on. Amanda and Lawrence works for NYU, which now owns the red brick townhouse at number three. On the top floor with his wife, Hopper lived and worked in a one-bedroom apartment from 1913 until his death in 67. Its main room is like a luminous garret in the sky with huge slanted skylights and gray-painted floors. It's fantastically well-preserved. Because especially because the easel's in the middle of the room, you kind of have the sense that like maybe he'll walk in at any moment, and he'll be like, you know, get out, and I'm going to paint. Uh, so I'm picturing all. I mean, there's so many paintings I'm picturing right. being birthed on this this easel. And then just so you know too, like so this is the model stand, um, and this mirror is the mirror that uh, he used. And obviously Joe was 4'11", so she would stand on the model stand because she was his model, and then he would be able to see all the, the angles. Something really crucial to Hopper in general is point of view and where actually the spectator is in space. And in some cases, it's not possible for the spectator to be standing on the ground. They'd have to be floating in the air. Almost four decades after Nighthawks, Ridley Scott was in production on a new film. It was about a dark city, about moving through it while up in the air. It was about the future. A new life awaits you in the off-world colonies. The chance to begin again in a golden land of opportunity and adventure. New climate, recreational facilities. They don't advertise for killers in a newspaper. That was my profession. Ex-cop. Ex-blade runner. Ex-killer. Of course, Blade Runner is only one of so many projects that reference Nighthawks as a spark of influence. The modern noir of L.A. Confidential is one of my favorites. Looks like the cook drew a handgun and set it off. The rest were killed in the men's room. The Night Owl Massacre. This is a heinous crime that requires swift resolution. Six victims, one of them, one of our own. Several films and TV shows had scenes actually set inside the painting. So irresistible, right? Every time it rains, it rains. There was Pennies from Heaven, starring Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters in 1981. The End of Violence by Vim Vendors. And even that 70s show. Tom Waits named an album after it. Nighthawks at the diner, Hammer's 49er. There's a rendezvous of strangers around a coffee in the night. It directly inspired literature by the likes of Joyce Carol Oates and Stephen King, paintings by Red Groom's Banksy, and of course, Gottfried Helmwine's Boulevard of Broken Dreams. With James Dean and Marilyn Monroe at the counter, oh, you know the one. So naturally, fans started actually 
looking for the real place. One of the famous things that's always said about Nighthawks is a quote by Hopper where he says, um, it was inspired by a restaurant on Greenwich Avenue where two streets meet. Gotta wait for the cars to pass. So here, come over here so we're facing away from the street. Okay. Yeah. Uh, right now we are walking up Greenwich Avenue. It cuts across all the regular streets of Manhattan, m making angles. And, you know, everybody knows that it was kind of like a triangular restaurant. So naturally, it would be at probably one of those triangles, right? Bob Egan has a blog called Pop Spots NYC and a book called Pop Culture New York City. In both, he obsessively sleuths out the real locations of pop cultural images, mostly album covers and films, that have particularly haunted him. Like... Nighthawks. I always loved uh, Edward Hopper. He's kind of like the rock star of painters of, you know, for America. I go to the library and you can find where, let's say he painted this in, I forget exactly the year. 42. You go to the library and they got every single store listed going up Greenwich Avenue by number. So I circle all the ones that were restaurants and then I went back and I, I, I photographed every single corner and there's probably 22 of them along Greenwich Avenue. And it came down basically to two of them, which were Greenwich Avenue at 11th Street and Greenwich Avenue at 12th Street. I found that there was a restaurant called Crawford Lunch that was where two streets meet at this angle, but it's not in any way, it doesn't look like Nighthawks, um, the painting. The little florist store at the corner of West 11th Street and Greenwich fits the bill in many different ways. Despite much debate, most experts agree that there is no 100% match to a real space that ever existed, but rather an amalgam based on Hopper's long relationship to the neighborhood. You know, I've read all these crazy blogs. Somebody thinks they know just where he got the um, coffee urn. They appear in his illustration. He already had them. Um, he had so many details of Nighthawks in his own commercial work. It's just a matter of synthesizing, you know, this great soup in his brain sort of coming to a boil and out comes Nighthawks. I think he was very clever that he sets up this stage for our fantasies. Maybe its scale and size has something to do with it. The dimensions are broad, five feet across and less than three feet tall. So it's almost as if he were anticipating the widescreen ratio our modern screens have embraced. And then it, you know, it fell into the, this notion of popular culture. Yeah, then, then the parodies of them became become famous and the takeoffs. I mean, think about it. This, you know, this is a work that has influenced the, uh, you know, the Simpsons <laughs> as well as artists. And so it has this power that transcends any moment of its own inspiration because people appropriate it and they understand it in a context that is far beyond and what its original intention was. What's interesting about Nighthawks is that it had the Hopper estate renewed the copyright. Certainly the image would not have proliferated as much as it has. It started popping up in all kinds of places. Gregory Clarick is an attorney in New York who's navigated some high-profile cases in art and entertainment, including a forgery intrigue that took down a major New York gallery. He and I discussed all the pieces of commercial swag, the posters, the coffee mugs, the mouse pads. A recent search on Amazon offered up 242 entries. All these companies have been able to ride Nighthawk's popularity all the way to the bank, royalty-free, because it's been in the public domain since 1970. 
What I remember most is, is as a child playing a, a Parker Brothers board game that was called Masterpiece. And in Masterpiece, you bought and sold and auctioned and traded various artworks. Be one of them, the flamboyant bidders in the exclusive high-tension world of international art. Do I hear 100? 100,000? 250,000. Which is what Parker Brothers' Masterpiece game is all about. Cezanne's, Monet's, Rembrandt's, they're all here, and you bid for them. Sometimes I have a vivid memory of often fighting with my brother and sister over the buying and selling and auctioning of the Nighthawks painting. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, I remember <laughs> playing Masterpiece as a game when I was a kid in the 70s, and Nighthawks was always a part of that story. I had the Nighthawks on the, my wall at college and stuff. In a way, Nighthawks hit a perfect storm for blockbuster achievement. Between the Depression and the war, film noir, which was black and white but Hopper delivered in color, modern psychology, suburban ennui, mass production, Nighthawks looks like entertainment but holds you like art. It's the connective tissue between the French Impressionists, Ridley Scott, and Family Guy. You know, I have a kind of way of thinking about art that works of art are in dialogue. The dialogues change depending on, you know, what's happening in the moment when the painting was made, what's happening in the moment when you see it. If I'm mounting an exhibition here at the Eamon Carter, I want Edward Hopper to be a part of it because people will care. Sorry, I'm sorry to get all passionate. It's fun for me to think about all this. You know, a work of art is a kind of constantly renewing resource. And you think about, you know, we all have to recharge our phones all the time because they run out of batteries, right? They run out of juice. Works of art like this, at this level, never run out of juice. Nighthawks at the diner, Hammer's 49er. There's a rendezvous of strangers around a coffee and a night. All the gypsy hacks and the insomniacs, now the people's been with. Sarah Lilly produced our story. Now the waitress said, eggs and sausages and sides. Our American Icons series is supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Hash browns are easy, chili in a bowl with burgers and fries. Coming up... how one member of a band describes its unlikely sound. Balloons sounds like music that you could sleep to while dancing. Balloons, adventures in genre bending. That's next on Studio 360. Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, a language app that teaches real-life conversations in a new language, like Spanish, French, and German. Babbel's 10 to 15-minute lessons are available in the App Store or online at babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L, dot Studio 360. These three people... Angelica Negron, Jose Olivares, and Raul Remundi are friends from Puerto Rico who now live in New York City. And you could say these friends live a double life together. 
During the day, they each go to their normal job. I'm a teaching artist for the New York Philharmonic and for Lincoln Center Education, working with learners of all ages. I work with the New York City uh, Department of Education. I work with the Computer Science for All initiative. I currently work for a startup as a project manager. But at night, these three play shows as part of a tropical indie band called Balloon. The band formed more than a decade ago in San Juan, but it had been eight years since their last album until now. And here are Angelica, Jose, and Raul telling us about the band's comeback and their latest single, El Espanto. Balloon sounds like music that you could sleep to while dancing. It's full of colors and textures and... And beats. And beats that hopefully want to make you... Make you want to move. Yeah. So Balloon started in Rio Piedras, Puerto Rico, and Jose and I were studying film in college. We were studying together, we were making films together, and we also felt the need for making music for some of those films as well. So we started making music. So Dreambow is a term that we invented, pretty much mashing up two things that we like a lot, the dream pop. And then also the dembow rhythm from Jamaica. So in Puerto Rico, the history of reggaeton has a lot to do with the dembow rhythm. So we grew up with that rhythm, but we never like used it in our music until we moved to New York. And then we just started like experimenting with the dembow rhythm. So at one point we were like, oh, we're just making like trimbo. I started working on El Espanto because I was teaching music production to teenagers in the South Bronx. As part of my job, I had to kind of like practice and make songs and learn how to make beats that the kids were asking me to do. Like, I want to make like a trap beat. And I'm like, okay, let me figure out how to make one and teach it. So for El Espanto in particular, I wanted to make something that was like very rhythmically. So I started with the bass line. The bass line is all completely programmed. And for some accident, it came sounding like very like salsa-like. And then I was like, okay, I think this one has a potential of like bringing the dembow rhythm. So we started with the bass line and then dembow rhythm. Because the whole dembow thing, like no one associated that with balloon and we were kind of like playing to a new crowd and an older crowd. And we were like, let's do something like, okay, there's the dembow rhythm. That's going to blow their minds because they've never, they would never imagine balloon using the dembow or like a reggaeton type beat. And then we were like, okay, so on top of that, let's just go crazy at the end and then just put like a jungle loop 
at the end. So it was kind of like making the audience go through different stages of like accepting balloon. Like, oh, first uh, this doesn't make sense. Then you're like, ah, oh, this might make sense. And then at the end, you're like, whoa, what the hell happened? And I also see it as also different stages of like a cleansing. So this person that kind of needs some type of work done so they can go on with their lives because there's definitely something not quite right there. So you're acknowledging it and then naming it and then actually doing the cleansing at the end of the song where it gets a little crazy. For a band like Balloon that we've been doing this for so long, that we're still doing things that people like and that we have like new things to show and new ideas to express and that we're reaching a new audience makes us feel like our music is growing up but also it still sounds fresh. That piece was produced by Antonio Cerejido and aired originally on Latino USA. Balloon's album Prisma Tropical is out right now. And that's it for this episode. But before we go, I want to remind you to subscribe to Studio 360 on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to podcasts, because then you'll never miss an episode and get some special previews and extras. By the way, when you visit iTunes, you can help other people discover Studio 360 by leaving a review. As somebody called Sinbad the Sailor recently did, saying our show is, quote, smart, interesting, and sometimes funny, Sinbad continues, I've played episodes more than once for friends. I love it. It's like listening to a down-to-earth, curious, professorial uncle. Studio 360 is an avuncular production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. I think he relished his solitude. He liked to skate. Thanks very much for listening. P.R.I. Public Radio International. From Hollywood, it's the Lawrence Welk Show. Next time on Studio 360. Learning to love the show your grandparents made you watch. I think Lawrence Welk is corny and cheesy. That's part of what's great. One and a two and a... That's next time on Studio 360.